Today's show is sponsored by Spoonflower. If you're a creative person who loves to design, there's nothing quite like the feeling of seeing your art printed onto fabric, or better yet, seeing someone across the globe purchase it and make something amazing. Spoonflower is the first company to make it possible to digitally print custom fabric, wallpaper, and gift wrap with no minimums and no limitations of colors. Shop from thousands of indie designs or sell your own designs and earn up to 15% commission on every sale. The best part, as an independent seller, you always keep the rights to your work. While She Naps podcast listeners can get 15% off your next Spoonflower fabric order. Go to try.spoonflower.com slash Abby and enter your email address to receive your coupon code. Thank you so much, Spoonflower. And now here's the show. episode 113 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about quilting and art history with my guest, Casey York. Casey has sewn for most of her life and has been making quilts for a decade. Initially inspired by the graphic possibilities of applique, she's worked in the quilting industry to push the boundaries of this tradition with her graphic contemporary designs and patterns. Casey received her PhD in art history in 2012 and is known in the quilting industry for her two books, Modern Applique Illusions, which came out in 2014, and The Applique Book, which came out in 2016. Her first line of fabric, Fine Spun Volume 1, was released by Studio 37 Fabrics, which is a division of Marcus Textiles. And that came out in the summer of 2017. She invites you to visit her website, CaseyYork.com, to learn more about her work. Casey York, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me, Abby. Yeah, um, you and I had a nice chat a couple of months ago on the phone after being online friends for a long time. And so we planned out this podcast and I'm super excited to finally get a chance to sit down and hear more about your story. So um, yeah, I want to start with a funny question, but it's about your name. So I've always known you all these years online as Casey York. And so I was doing research, you know, to prepare for the podcast And somewhere along the way, I clicked on something that said that actually your name is, and I'm going to pronounce it hopefully right, Casey Gardonio Fote. Um, But you use like a trade name, which is Casey York. So I'm wondering if you can tell us the backstory there. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, this is kind of both a personal story and uh, a little bit of a pragmatic story. Um, But when I started my company, I knew I wanted to have a business, right? And so I had to come up with a name for that business. And I didn't exactly know what direction the business was going to take at the very beginning. I knew I wanted it to be something in design, but I wanted the potential to be able to expand it. So I didn't want to just name it Casey Gardonio Folks fabrics or something that was really tied to a particular type of product. Um, So I was looking for something that had some longevity and also some flexibility. And so it obviously needed to be something that wasn't subject-based. And my name was the best alternative for something that was open-ended. But at that time, I was just finishing my degree and I hadn't quite given up on the possibility of having a career in academia. And 
careers at that point, getting a, a job as a professor was incredibly um, competitive. It's still, I think, incredibly competitive. And so I also wanted to be searchable online, but not necessarily give away that I was doing this other thing on the side if I wanted to apply for a job. So that was one of the reasons that I decided on um, a uh, on a name that wasn't actually my own name, the name that I had done my studies under, the name that I wrote my dissertation under. Um, so we kind of made up the name Casey York. I was actually on a cross-country drive with my husband when he suggested it because we had lived in New York for graduate school and that was one of my favorite cities and it still is one of my favorite cities in the world. So it still kind of paid homage to my personality and things, but it really also rolled off the tongue better and allowed me that potential to continue to pursue an academic career if that's the direction I decided that I wanted to ago. And the other really kind of pragmatic part about it is that when I started looking into naming my company after myself, I learned a lot about eponymously named companies. And one of the things that if you have a successful company that uses your own name is that if you ever decide to exit that company, you give up the rights to your name, essentially. So Kate Spade, um, Joe Malone in London, all of those individuals who use their real names, when they sold their companies, they no longer have the ability to use their name in their official business publications if they ever want to start something else. So by naming my company Casey York as a doing business as kind of thing, I retain the ability to continue to use my own personal name in a legal sense. Yeah, and I think of Marianne Fons from Fons and, po and Porter, um, and she ran into that exact same problem. Exactly. And so it's a, a really good tip just generally if you are thinking about it. And I also think there's another layer of protection that comes um, with choosing a trade name or sort of a, another version of your name if you do want to yeah. use your name, which is that it depersonalizes the interactions you have as a business owner. And so Sometimes oh, really? when somebody's, you know, writing to you and they're very upset, a customer <laughs> or or a blog reader or whomever it might be, right? And and they're writing to you and it's your name as the business, it can be, I don't know, hurtful or it can be hard to separate yourself. Whereas if oh, they're writing okay. to you and you have this persona, you're yeah. that person and it's not really you. And that in yeah. some emotional way can be helpful. I think, yeah, that's a really insightful thing to say. And I think that it covers a, a broader spectrum than just when you're getting feedback from people who may be critical of you. Um, I'm on Facebook as Casey York, and it helps me to remember that even though I am very good friends, I feel, with all of the people that I'm connected to on Facebook, that's still a business account. And so what I put there is always the front face of my business instead of, you know, some of the more personal things that can unfortunately sometimes get people into trouble if they have a blurring of the lines between their personal lives and their business lives. Super. Well, I'm so glad I asked about that because that was really interesting to hear. And you grew up, I know, in rural northern Minnesota, which <laughs> frankly sounds super cold um, right now in Boston. It's freezing cold and we've got over a foot of snow on the ground. And in fact, we were supposed to record this podcast last week, but my kids had a snow day. And so we did not record and we postponed it till today. So um, so uh -huh. what was your upbringing like in, in Minnesota? Well, it was chilly. You're correct there. Um, I grew up in Duluth. So um, I, for listeners who don't aren't familiar with Duluth, um, it's, it's not a super rural community, but it has suburbs that still, at least at the time that I was growing up, were 
they were connected. They weren't rural in the sense that they were distant from a commercial center, but they were rural in the sense that the houses were spread far apart. They were surrounded by woods. Um, we had a very private home that I grew up in. We couldn't see our neighbors from inside the house. I spent most of my childhood running around in the woods unsupervised. So, um, which that might not sound totally flattering, actually, come to think of it. But it was a really good way to grow up. And I think that it really um, increased my creativity and my sense of independence and stuff and my sense of curiosity as well. So um, Duluth was, uh, Duluth is a lovely city. I love visiting, um, not so much in the winter, but in the summer, it's beautiful. Um, but I always was more of a city person. So I grew up really wanting to get to someplace a little bit more urban. And I had the good fortune to go to New York. And before New York, I went to school in Madison, Wisconsin. And so, um, and I think that I have kind of retained that sense of wanting to be in a more urban location with a little bit more going on than maybe there necessarily always is in Duluth. But it's a really nice respite. And it's nice to know that, you know, there are places like that that are a little bit quieter and stuff too, but still have really vibrant um, small business and entrepreneurship and creative and maker communities in them. So. And where, where do you and your family live now? We are in St. Louis now, okay. St. Louis, Missouri. Yes. Nice. Um, yeah. All right. And you came um, to quilt making in, in the way that I think actually quite a few people, both women and men, come to quilt making, which is to say that you were having a baby and mm -hmm. wanted to make a quilt for the baby. And I think, you know, quilting often comes to mind when we have these life events, whether it's making, you know, having a baby, making something for a baby or um, a wedding, you know, somebody's getting married, somebody special is getting married in your family. These sorts of life events like that, or even somebody going off to college, um, make us want to create, you know, a handmade item. And then for a lot of people, that's the first introduction to crafting a, a particular, you know, style of craft, whether it's quilting, crochet, knitting, something like that. And so that was your story. So tell us a little bit about that first quilt and sort of what made you want to make it, what it looked like, and then what the next step was. Definitely, definitely. It's interesting that you say that because I think you're absolutely right um, about the desire to kind of create something that will be an heirloom when you have a major life event like that. But I think that there was another kind of prong to my wanting to make a quilt for my son when he was born. And that was that I was living in New York City at the time and I've always loved shopping. And I was in this art history program and my school was on the Upper East Side. So you can just imagine the kinds of shopping that I was doing on Park Avenue and stuff, not ever buying anything, just looking at things through the windows. But the kinds of products that are available and at your fingertips in New York are so finely made and so high prestige and so expensive. And they were totally outside of my ability to acquire for my child at that point in time, living on a graduate student stipend. So, but I had this background in sewing and actually I got into art history because it was my safe career choice. I had originally wanted to do something in the arts, like be an animator or be a fashion designer or something. I, for some reason, thought that academia was going to provide me more secure career options. Um, but I still had this really creative streak. And so I had been sewing and using that as a creative outlet for pretty much my whole life. And so it occurred to me, you know, I see these things that I would love to purchase for my son, but I can make 
something just as good, if not better, and it can be totally custom and I can design it myself so I can enjoy that whole process. And then it will have this additional layer of meaning beyond something that I just went out and purchased that somebody else might have an identical copy of. And so it was kind of a combination of that desire to make an heirloom, um, but also a desire to kind of achieve some of these aspirational home furnishings that I saw all around me, but didn't really have access to as a graduate student. Um, and then I was also super, super fortunate because when I was living in New York, I could just go down to the fashion district and buy my fabrics there. And so the level of inspiration that was available in um, shopping in that kind of district in the city was really fantastic, too. So the whole thing was a completely wonderful experience. That was the first quilt I had ever made. And I also discovered that all of the things that had previously frustrated me in my previous sewing experiences, like trying to make three-dimensional things that fit me, um, those weren't present in the quilt making process. It was really, really simplified compared to some of the sewing I had done in the past. And so it was really much more enjoyable. And so I really got hooked on it. As soon as I finished that quilt for Julian, I couldn't wait to make another one. I was already planning what I was going to make for my next child, even though that wasn't going to happen for, you know, an untold number of years afterwards. I was looking for excuses to make another one. So I really, really got hooked on the process and the, um, the craft of quilting as well. But the introduction to it was more of a means to an end than um, something where I was really planning on taking up a hobby or a vocation. And what kind, like, how did you know how to make that quilt? What kind of quilt was it? Did you buy a book or a pattern or did you just <laughs> sort of wing it? I kind of just winged it. Um, we, you know, looking back on what the internet was like then, we still had dial-up. So, it, you know, the resources that were available online were not nearly as rich as the ones that quilters have available to them today. But there were still a lot of websites where you could find photos very slow to load photos, actually, um, but that would walk you through the process of how to put on a binding and what's the best kind of batting to use. And so I did a lot of internet research. I looked for images of quilts to figure out what kind of style I wanted to go with. And, um, and then I also looked a lot to what was on the market in terms of consumer goods as well. So I kind of settled on the style of applique because of what I saw in the baby stores but then look to the quilting websites to find re uh, recommendations for fabrics to use and the techniques that I should use as I was doing it. And then I did have a sewing background. And so um, I don't want to say that a quilt is a simple thing to make, but I knew basic how to do basic sewing. And quilting is really just a straight stitch. So that was something that I also just had enough experience to kind of figure that I could wing it. Okay. So you were doing applique from the start then? Yes. Which is interesting because I think a lot of quilters don't start there. I think a lot of quilters start with piecing. I think you're right. Yeah. Well, I wanted to do something figural, I guess. Um, I really liked the abstract design of a lot of the pieced quilts. But for a baby quilt especially, I wanted something that would have motifs on it that were recognizable as something that you could see out in the world. So the first quilt that I made for Julian had like an undersea theme and it was inspired actually by a baby quilt that I saw at the Gap that had a farm theme strangely enough. And I was like, oh, I can do that, except I can make sea creatures on it. So I found this really wonderful seersucker and I picked out some like kind of wide whale corduroy that coordinated with it. And those colors kind of led me to doing something that had like starfishes and crabs and scallop shells and stuff on it. And um, applique just was the easiest way. I mean, I had no idea 
um, even in, in, even once I started my quilting business about some of the possibilities that you can do with paper piecing. And I certainly wouldn't have really wanted to attempt that at that early date. So applique just kind of was the most practical technique to use to achieve that kind of result. I see. Okay. And so now, I mean, you've really become known for applique. You've made some incredibly stunning, visually stunning applique quilts. Um, And I sort of associate your style um, with like almost reinventing what applique can do, which is really, yeah, it's really, you know, that's a big impact. So, and you do something that's called improvisational applique, which I find to be sort of a fascinating combination of words because to me, like, you know, applique is a very planned sort of thing and, um, is sort of fussy in that you, you know, you're under turning under these really tiny little seams and have these perfect hand stitches. That's what I associate with applique. And then improv seems very, you know, off the cuff and loose and spontaneous. And so if you think about improvisational applique, I'm like, how is that? So what, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> that's, that's a great question. Um, I can't take credit really for the idea of improvisational applique. Um, this is another case of kind of something that I had been exposed to through my art history training, influencing how I approached the process of quilting. And in this case, how I approached the process of getting images generated and then onto fabric. So I guess the first thing to note here is that the type of applique that I specialize in is raw edge applique. So when you're thinking of turning in under tiny little seams, that is a little bit different process than what I use. And you can still achieve really stunning results with that. And then you can still do improvisational applique that way. But the tools that I use, I think, lent themselves better to the development and just the inspiration to try to do something in this way. I use a fused technique where you take a fusible product and you put it on your applique fabric, and then you can pretty much just cut out whatever shapes you want. And you don't have any limitations on, you know, how, how tight the corners can be or what the curves look like, because you're not going to be turning under any seam allowances. So that was kind of a technical aspect to what makes improvisational applique possible in the way that I do it. Um, And so improvisational kind of collaging techniques have been around forever. And probably the most well-known is Henri Matisse's decoupés, gouache decoupés, which were actually the subject of an exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in 2014 and 15. And he essentially did the same thing. He'd take painted colored paper and he would cut out things in a very freeform way. He'd have kind of a base idea of this kind of shape that he wanted, but then he would just kind of meander. So it's exactly the same kind of concept that improvisational piecers have when they're improvisationally cutting the pieces of fabric that they're then going to sew together. But with Matisse, he would cut out these curved shapes and then he would collage them onto a background. And that's exactly what I do with improvisational applique. I put the fusible on my fabric and then I cut out the shapes with kind of maybe a core type of shape in mind. And then I arrange them without any plan or maybe just kind of a basic concept, but not actually a pattern on a background until I arrive at a composition that I like. And then they can just be fused and sewn down. So I hope that kind of explains a little bit what the general concept behind yeah, idea is. Absolutely. Um, there's there's kind of there, a, a kind of a sister technique to improvisational applique is a technique called broderie purse. 
And embroidery purse, instead of taking a solid fabric and cutting completely random shapes out of it, you take a fabric that has motifs printed on it and you cut around the motifs and then you arrange them on a background. And this technique actually goes all the way back to the 1700s. So again, there's this really improvisational aspect to it where you don't have a set pattern in mind. You're letting the fabric kind of tell you how it wants to be arranged and you're coming up with a completely new concept and composition with the shapes that you cut out. And I was really interested when I started um, researching Broderry Purse for a workshop that I was giving that even back in the 1700s, the recommendation was that you would use a paste to secure those pieces in place on your background fabric before you stitch it down. So it just goes to show you that even this concept of using a newfangled type of product like a fusible is really not super, super unique. We've been doing that for many, many centuries. Mm -hmm. And I think some people too would say, oh, that's like, you know, sort of corrupting the purity of this age old craft. But what you're saying is that Actually, people have wanted to be able to paste down fabric without <laughs> stitching it for a long exactly. time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I want to take a minute now to hear from our sponsor, Spoonflower. We're going to talk to Sarah Engelhart, Spoonflower's product and procurement manager. I am Sarah Engelhart, and I am the product and procurement manager here at Spoonflower. And I hear that Spoonflower has got something neat and new coming up. So do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, we are super excited to be launching our new fabric, which is one of the heaviest in our lineup. It's called Dogwood Denim. It will be great for heavyweight projects and hopefully let us fill some of that bottom weight apparel market that we haven't gotten to reach yet. Wow, that is so cool. Denim is hot right now, I feel like. I see it everywhere. Quilters are using denim especially and lots of people sewing their own jeans. So Mm -hmm. we could go to the Spoonflower Marketplace or design our own uh, print and then have that on denim now. Yes, printed denim has really been trendy over the past few months and I think it'll continue to be so. So it'll be really fun to see how our prints translate onto apparel. So the other thing we're really excited about this fabric for is that it's upholstery rated. That means it passes abrasion testing. So it can be used in home upholstery and even commercial applications and it'll hold up to that. So it's great for chairs, bar stools, any kind of furniture revamp. This is our first natural fabric that meets that standard. So our polys like our velvet and our eco canvas already do, but this is the first natural fabric that we're adding to that category. So Spoonflower is an online marketplace for fabric. We source all of our designs from indie fabric designers and you can even design your own print. So you can upload to our site and then get that print on a variety of fabrics. I believe we're up to about 27 options now with Dogwood Denim being the newest. So I started at Spoonflower in the operations department back in 2013. And from there, I actually moved to the research and development department doing a little bit of QA. So testing fabric durability and performance. And then I am now a part of the product and procurement team. So I'm sourcing new fabrics and keeping the factory going. Thank you so much, Spoonflower. And now back to my conversation with Casey. Mm -hmm, That's interesting. And I I also find it really 
um, really interesting that how the ways that your art history background really informs your um, quilting practice. So do you want to talk a little bit about sort of the interaction there or how you, when you go about learning something new in quilting or, um, you know, experimenting with a new process, the degree to which you're thinking back to what you know from art history or are looking at reference books or, you know, sort of how it's coming, you know, visiting museums, how it's coming into your mind, those interactions, because not everybody has that, you know, really advanced degree in art history. I studied art history in college and loved it, um, but I just certainly don't have a PhD in it. And so um, I'm sure that, you know, you're pulling on that in a lot of different ways. Yeah. I think that when you study something for that long, when you really study something with the intention of making it your career, like it becomes such an integral part of your life and your worldview that it really becomes inseparable from the ways that you approach pretty much everything. And so that's an interesting question because I think that it's so inherent to me to look at things through that lens at this point. It's almost difficult to describe and to pull out what's different between how I look at things now and how I would look at things if I had never gotten that degree and never pursued that area of study. Um, I fell in love with art history at about the age of 16 when I could not get into a studio art class at the local university. And so this was my way. So it was always kind of uh, looking back on it. I approached it from the perspective of wanting to use it. How can this be useful for my art practice? instead of I'm going to study this in its own right. And because I fell in love with it, I kind of went on this different path and was studying it for its own right. Um, But I think that because I was always creating things on the side, I was always approaching the things that I was studying in terms of why did the artists do that? And what were they thinking when they made the decision to approach the work that they were working on in the particular way they did? So for me, having a background as a maker made me study art history with an eye to art as a problem solving exercise. How, why do you compose a painting in this particular way? And why is that better than a different way that you can compose it? And what problem is getting solved there? And why is this solution special? And so that kind of circles back to now when I have a quilt design that I'm trying to come up with, I still see that quilt design process as, again, a problem solving exercise. But now I have this toolbox that's full of examples of how other artists have approached similar types of problems. And I think that that is probably the most explicit way that it informs my quilt making practice. Um, In addition to that, I think that the research skills that I developed as a graduate student um, and as an undergraduate too in art history are really valuable because if I have a question or I do run into a problem where I need some piece of technique advice, it's easy for me to go out and find that. Or if I find a problem where I really need some inspiration, I have this whole mental library of different types of art that I've been exposed to, even if it was just a picture that I happened to glance at in a book. 14 years ago. I probably still have that book on my bookshelf to begin with, so I can go look up that picture again. But I also know that it's out there. And so maybe it's not the solution to the problem that I'm looking for. But knowing that it's there and where to find it can be really helpful in terms of just being a resource problem solving. Mm-hmm. So does that kind of answer your question yeah, a little absolutely. bit? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I was just saying to my daughter the other day, we are making a costume for her. Um, she's going to be Empress Theodora from oh, nice. Roman, yeah, uh-huh. Roman Byzantine Empress. Oh, 
fantastic. For, That's wonderful. Um, yes, they're doing a Rome unit in school and they have to be, you know, in a wax museum, a living wax museum <laughs> and tell their story. So oh. we're making her costume and and she's like, well, what if this crown, the way we've made it doesn't work? And I said, well, you know, craft is all about and, and art is all about problem solving. So every step, there'll be a problem and then you have to think on it for a while and then you have to figure out a solution. And that's what it is every step of the way. So, yeah. um, and I think it's true. It's and it's a great and research as well. I mean, there's a great skills for life in general, just being able to conquer those, those two things. So, um, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about fabric design because uh -huh. I remember this was a couple of years back. We had emailed a couple of times and you really set about an intention that you wanted to be a fabric designer. And I think <laughs> this is a dream that a lot of people share. Some people okay. are more afraid, I think, than you were to sort of say it out loud. I mean, you really were like, this is what I want to do. I want to have a fabric line. I want to design fabric and I'm going to develop a portfolio and make this happen. Um, whereas a lot of people are sort of like, I'm afraid to say it and afraid to do it. Um, but you did make it happen. And I know that there must have been a lot of steps along the way and potentially some, you know, missteps, I'm not sure, but some disappointments or dead ends or whatever. So I wanted to see if you would be willing to share what it took to go from, I want to design fabric to my line is out at quilt market this year kind of thing. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Um, so I actually, when I decided to um, pursue a career in the quilting industry, fabric design was the entryway for me. Um, I had reached a point where my family, um, my husband and I both pursued academic degrees. We both thought we would probably work at a university one day, as some of your listeners may know, as you probably know, um, looking for an academic job requires a lot of traveling around the country. And it's even more difficult if you have two academic job seekers in the same family because finding jobs at the same university or in the same city or even in the same state can be really difficult. So my husband had found a good job, not in academia, but when that happened, it kind of closed off my ability to be able to do a nationwide search for a job because I wasn't going to uproot my family for something that wasn't going to pay as well as what he already had. So I started looking at, okay, well, what else might I want to do? And I had been curious about starting a business and I happened to run into a fabric design competition. And that kind of set off a bell in my head that was like, hey, fabric design uses all those motifs that I've been studying in art history, all of those motifs that I always admired and the decorative art that um, I had been seeing in museums and that I was kind of addicted to researching and collecting. And maybe this would be a good way to combine what I've already done in terms of professional training with some kind of a design business oriented career. So that was kind of the practical reason why fabric design itself seemed to make sense. I wasn't as familiar with all of the other career and um, business opportunities within the quilting market itself at that time. But fabric design was really out there as um, something that you could really probably make a go at. And that was um, a an aspect of the industry that had relatively low barriers to entry in the sense that if you had a good design and really you know, hustled and got it out there in front of people that it wasn't going to matter necessarily if you had a design degree under your belt or what your resume looked like, you could still be successful. So 
um, I started researching, you know, what did it take to get into fabric design? And I um, taught myself design software, which is in my case, I use Adobe Illustrator. So I, um, I took some Lynda classes to figure out how to use that. And, and just to I clarify, up, just to clarify, yeah. that's lynda.com if people want Lynda. to go com, check that yeah. out. Yeah, L-Y-N-D-A, <laughs> yeah. And those are yeah. awesome, awesome classes to learn new software, yeah. Oh, super, super great. I, that's the only training I've ever had on Adobe Illustrator and it was fantastic. It has lasted me for years and years and years. So it was really, really worth it. Um, so I, I taught myself the software and I looked into what resources were available as far as getting into the industry um, of uh, fabric design and specifically for the quilting market, because I thought that's where the prints that I wanted to design would fit best. So the first thing that I found was um, the designer, Lizzie House, who was designing with Andover when I first started. She actually wrote an ebook on how to design quilt fabric. And so that was the first thing I looked at. And that led me to a couple of um, additional online courses. I took a course on creativelive.com with Bonnie Christine, who designs for, um, oh, it's art gallery fabrics. And I also took a class with Michelle Fyfus, who works at Pattern Observer, and she actually worked as a fabric designer and surface designer for the fashion and apparel industries for a long time. So that was really interesting in terms of it introducing me to some of the other types of fabrics and the other uses of fabrics and the other substrates that are out there in the surface design industry as a whole. Um, and both of those classes also allowed me to, as I was developing a portfolio, get as much feedback as I could from fellow students and also from the instructors. So not only did they give me a lot of skills and a lot of useful information on how to approach designing a fabric, but they also allowed me to test out my designs and kind of hone my direction and my own style through the feedback that I got from others. So um, I took those classes after I had started trying to put my portfolio out into the quilt market. So I actually went to my first quilt market in Kansas City, and I believe that was 2012. And that's what's really convenient to me because I live in St. Louis, so Kansas City is just a four-hour drive for me, and I could get there really easily. And um, I actually left from St. Louis the day after I returned from graduating in New York City. So that's you know, always been to me kind of a really kind of symbolic um, transition period. It was like I finished my degree and then I transitioned right into this other type of career altogether. And when I was there, I, I was just going to kind of experience the market. So I tried to, you know, set up appointments with other fabric designers who might be willing to give me advice about how they got into things and some of their best practices. And I looked and paid attention to what lines were out there and specifically how they were displayed and how they were marketed. So I could get a sense of what I would need to do if I was successful in getting a fabric line. And I made contacts with a lot of companies and a lot of art directors. I didn't have any appointments with art directors at this point because I was so early in the process, but I collected a lot of business cards and I followed up with those people afterwards. And so I sent my portfolio out to all of these contacts that I had made at Quilt Market and I got rejected every time. So that was my first really kind of major lesson was that you're when you do this, you're putting yourself out there and you're not going to get anywhere if you don't put yourself out there. But if you're going to put yourself out there, you need to distance yourself enough to remember that rejection isn't something you need to take personally. It just necessarily means that you're not the best fit at that particular time in that moment with that particular body of work 
for that particular manufacturer. And so that was actually a really useful part of the process for me was to get rejected all those times because it really thickened my skin and yeah. made me okay with putting my stuff out there. And, and I think that that is, you know, that fear of failure is what holds a lot of people back. It does. And, um, and not only the fear of failure, let's say you overcome that and you actually send it out, even if you send it to just one company, let's say, through a contact that you've made in person and get that one rejection. For a lot of people, that's the end point because yeah. um, they see that rejection. And I know this has happened to me in other places and other, you know, um, tries that I've had where you see that rejection as a, as a overall rejection of you. Right. And that's, uh-huh. as you just said, that's not the case. A lot of times it has to do with timing. It has to do with what else is going on, what else they've already gotten, et cetera. And so it can really be, so how many companies do you estimate you sent to and were rejected (laughs) from about, I mean, are we talking two, are we talking 10? I think maybe all of them. Okay. Um, Okay. So no, no, this is super important. The other thing too, is that people feel really embarrassed, right? Like after that rejection, you feel Mm. like you can never show your face again. And if you've sent it to everyone, it's like, Uh oh my gosh, I'm done. You know? Um, (laughs) And so I think to hear from you that you did bounce back. So what steps did you take after that to rebuild and figure this out? So I kept, you know, I kept designing. I think part, um, one of the things that you have to remember is that you don't just want to come up with a collection and then shop it around and not move on from there. Um, Styles change. Everything changes in the marketplace. Uh, Quilting is, you know, we have two trade shows a year, which means that we are getting an influx of new lines and designs at least twice a year. Um, So you have to keep designing. And so one of the things I did was even though I was sending out a portfolio, I was developing new stuff to put in the portfolio constantly. And every time I did something new, that new stuff was better than what had been in the portfolio before, because I was constantly learning something. And I was, you know, arriving at solutions to things that um, maybe were better suited for the trends at that particular time, or maybe even just better suited for whatever particular art director it happened to land on the desk of, right? So because there is a personal aspect to that as well, even though I don't take the rejection personally, certain things appeal to different people. And there is a, a pretty strong undercurrent of, you know, good fortune that runs through this too, in terms of hitting somebody right, you know, in right in the right place at the right time, right? So I continued making work, I continued going to quilt markets, I always tried to make sure that I had samples of my work in a way that could show people how those patterns would actually work in sewn goods. So the marketing aspect, even before you have a contract is super important. It's much easier to um, convince somebody that your product is right for them and would be successful in the marketplace if you do the work for them of putting it into a format that they can envision their customers wanting to buy. Yeah, so I would that, is so, that is yeah. so important. So you could, did you, I was just going to say, did you get them printed through Spoonflower and yeah. then sew with them? Um, yeah, and right. I think being able to do that work for somebody and serve it to them is incredibly important. Oh yeah, totally, totally important. And I would do mock-ups. I would create lookbooks that were modeled after the lookbooks that actual fabric lines had so that all the swatches were there and displayed in the same ways that hopefully these manufacturers would display actual lines they were bringing to market. Um, And I actually even went as far as to get an agent. 
So, and my agent actually was shopping my work around for all types of surface design applications. So stationary and a lot of other things as well as fabric design and fabric design that wasn't just in the quilting industry. So I pretty much went, I, I, I threw a lot of spaghetti at the wall to see what would stick, essentially, um, if you don't mind me being colloquial there. And I kept doing that and I continued to get rejected. And I, I you know, I approached companies more than once each time with new material just to kind of see. And I talked with the contacts that I had made because again, once you get past that idea that, you know, it's not, it's not personal. In fact, I had people tell me, you know, we like your designs, but we already have a designer who's doing pretty much the same thing. And we don't want to be poaching from people who are already in our stable of designers, which, you know, when you think about it that way, it's like, oh, so my work is actually on trend. I just, they don't need another one of me at their company. But those people were really, um, useful and generous with their time in terms of getting me feedback about what other things I should try and how I could market myself better. And I took their advice. And um, I also learned more things, you know, as this was all going on, I was also writing books and writing patterns and starting to teach nationally. And, um, and also learning that you probably there are there are really really successful fabric designers out there but in the quilting industry i think it's rare for anybody to be making their living solely off of fabric design i think that the um, margins are just too small for that to be the only thing that you're doing and so i was putting other irons in the fire because that's what you have to do in this industry regardless and so i was getting a lot of work from those i was getting a lot of positive reinforcement from those and i finally reached the point where i was like okay well i can kind of put this on the back burner for a while. I'm still going to do it, but I'm going to focus here. And that's when I went to QuiltCon and gave a lecture on art history. And that was attended by the art director for Marcus Textiles. And she approached me afterwards and offered me a contract. So it just goes to show you that sometimes opportunity falls into your lap when you're least expecting it as well. And you just need to do your best to prepare yourself to accept that opportunity when it comes along. Yeah, that is such a great story. And it reminds me in some ways of like dating. I don't know why, but like, you know, it's like yeah. you can be so desperate to meet the right person and be, you know, doing all the right things and going to all the right parties and all the right, you know, doing all the right things that you're supposed to be doing. And it sort of never seems to stick. And then when you're really just doing the things you enjoy, um, yes. uh, you know, and just because you love, you know, being at this event and you're just having fun and this is what you you only came here for yourself. It's at that moment that you meet the person that you're meant Absolutely. to be with. And it's funny I how that happens. I think that analogy to dating is so spot on, too, because it really covers a lot of things in addition to that, just being yourself and being your best self tends to be when those opportunities arise. But also, you know, it, it gets to the whole, you know, you need to make that match when the timing is right and the circumstances are right as well. And that, I think, can carry through to a lot of different aspects of submitting your portfolio and looking to find a good match with a manufacturer. So. Yeah. And also just diversifying your um, skill set. You know, when you write a book, oh, yeah. you're learning about tech editing, you're learning about marketing. There's lots of different things that you learn about when you write a book, about creating a cohesive body of work for a book and that kind of thing. And when you're lecturing, preparing for a lecture and interacting with students and even just applying to lecture at QuiltCon and um, receiving, you know, the the good news that you your lecture was accepted and you're going to be teaching at this wonderful national event and that sort of thing. You know, it's like you're diversifying your experience and you get to know the market in different ways, different sides of it, interacting more with consumers and that sort of thing. And 
Um, and over time, I think that those experiences also inform the portfolio and your confidence and your approach and also relationships, all the relationships that you meet. You know, being at QuiltCon exposed mm-hmm. you to this maybe different art director. Had you applied to Marcus in the past? I hadn't. I did say kind of flippantly that I applied to all of the fabric companies, but I didn't actually submit to all of the fabric companies out there. Um, I just more than I can count. Um, but Marcus, you know, that's another thing I think that I hadn't realized was that I was submitting to companies that I thought would be a good match for my design. But that was based on what they already had in the marketplace which meant that often my designs were kind of, they weren't duplicating something they already had, but maybe they were the same type of style. Whereas Marcus was really looking to build up their portfolio of more modern designs that would attract, you know, the kind of consumers that would go to QuiltCon, which is the the Modern Quilt Guild annual convention. And so they were in a spot where they were looking for designers like me, but because they didn't already have a lot of designers like me. So really, in a lot of ways, they were a much more fertile kind of manufacturer that I should have been focusing on all along because I was bringing something different to their collection that I wasn't necessarily presenting to some of the other manufacturers who are already working in that modern quilting space. Okay, that is a great tip. Such a good tip. And also, I mean, because Marcus, right, they're spending money to send this staff person, you know, this art director, um, fly them out to to the show to attend and um, put them up for a few days. So they're Mm -hmm. invested in uh, and I'm sure the meeting, you know, prior to the the trip was you're going to go and you have these specific goals, right? Like they don't right. just send a staff person with no goals. The goals exactly. are, and clearly one of the goals were, <laughs> we want you to find and make connections with people who can design fabric for us and products for us that will appeal to this population. And exactly. so she's there, she's got to meet her goals and there you are, you know? And right. so the, uh, anyway, being able to to <laughs> sort of hunt down a company that needs you, they may not even, but see, they were, I was going to say they may not even know they need you, but they're past that point. They right. know they need you. Coming to a company that doesn't know they need you, that's a harder uphill climb, right? Because they oh, don't yeah. invested yet. But here's a company who knows they need you, but doesn't know you yet. And that's the right, right. yeah. Right, right. Absolutely. And um, just to kind of circle back to one of the other things you had said about just diversifying your skill set. One of the things that a lot of companies are looking for, not only in fabric designers, but what publishers are looking for in book authors and what conventions are looking for in workshop teachers is that you already have somewhat of a following because a lot of times you're going to be responsible for doing much of the marketing for any of those things. And so the more diversified your skill set is and the more active you are in the industry, the bigger that following grows and the better sell you are for somebody that you'd like to work with because you bring that following to them then. Yeah, absolutely. And that can also be very um, disheartening for people to hear, though, you know, because somebody can say like, well, I'm actually a really skilled artist and I have, you know, unique and original designs, but I have 100 people following me on Instagram and I've never taught anywhere and I've never written a book. But shouldn't my art be sort of seen for its own right and, you know, compared side by side with some of the art that's already on fabric mines better. So shouldn't that win? And it's disheartening to hear, not necessarily, because in some cases and increasingly, I would argue, 
um, companies are looking for a marketing partner in addition to a talented artist. Yeah, I, you know, I think you're right, but I think that you could push that further. I can understand why it would be disheartening, but I also think that so much of this, one of the ways you can look at it is that you don't have to be teaching with a major um, convention or manufacturing fabric with a major manufacturer to gain followers. With the internet, you have the control of, or putting yourself out there and gaining followers and even doing some of the marketing research. And, you know, if you want to put money into advertising yourself and coming up with a product, I think that you are one of the people that I admire so much, Abby, because so much of your business seems like it was something that you drove the growth there. You didn't wait for a podcast publisher to come to you and ask you to do a podcast for them. You did it yourself and figured out how to put it out there. And now all of that success is something that you were able to organically grow on your own. And I think that that following aspect is something that people are also able to grow on their own, not necessarily with the help of a manufacturer, but just through the kinds of tools that are available in the community that we have online today. So I don't think that it's a deal breaker. I think that it's just, it's something that people should be mindful of, even if it feels disheartening to them, because it's important to also be a realistic about the fact that you are going to have to go in and market. And if all you want to do is design art um, and have it be the best art out there, I think that's a phenomenal goal. But if you do get picked up by a company and you decide that you're not going to participate in the marketing process, then you might not meet with as much success as maybe the quality of your art possibly deserves because that's not the way the industry works. And there's a lot of things that go into making something successful. Yeah, that's a great point. And I always feel like um, to your point about, you know, sort of making your own success, I feel like to the extent that you can, if you can pursue what you really love as though it were your job, um, Mm -hmm. which means that, you know, you show up every day like you would to a job because otherwise you're going to get fired um, and (laughs) you do, you know, top quality work again, same reason. um, And you pursue it really as though it were your job, even though it is not your job. Over time, it will become your job. And the way that happens is people see it and they see that it's top quality and then they want it for their own company. And so they contact you and ask you, can you make it for them? Uh, And that's how book deals, for example, come about often, right? You're writing a blog, your blog's really good. um, People seem to really like it. It's getting shared a lot. um, You know, it's really beautiful or whatever. And somebody sees it, a publisher or an agent and says, you know, I want you to make that for us because it will make us money. I mean, that's really the reason. Um, And then that does make you money and then it becomes your job. And I realized too, though, that that's a luxury that not everybody has to take the time and effort and energy to be able to pour into something that you're not at that moment getting paid to do. Yeah, that's no, that's true. But I also think that it's important to realize that business requires risk and, you know, it's okay to be honest with yourself about what level of risk you're willing to take on, but you can't get the rewards that come with putting in a lot of risk without taking that risk to a certain extent. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That, um, that there is a cost to success and there is a, you know, I, I, maybe cost isn't the right word, but you kind of get out what you put in and sometimes what you're putting in is taking a risk. 
So um, I think I thought of a better way of saying what I wanted to say before, too, about like the whole gaining a following, if that's okay with you. Sure. Um, but uh, I guess what I wanted to say is we have these, these amazing resources to be able to reach out to people on the internet and people that we don't necessarily know, people who aren't necessarily in our personal circles, but people worldwide. So if you have art that you feel is better than anything else that's out there, don't wait for a manufacturer to pick it up and expect them to expose everybody else to it and take that risk on you. Start taking the risk yourself and exposing those people to it. Because if it's really that good and they really love it that much and they start following you, then you'll have the following that the manufacturers are looking for. Mm, so it's all great. in your hands. It doesn't have to be disheartening. If you're realistic about the fact that it's needed, then you have the tools at your fingertips to be able to make that work for you. So think of it as an opportunity instead of a drawback. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, I also think there's a piece there for some people um, where they're afraid that if they do put it out there, it will be stolen, stolen uh, in that it will be copied. Um, it will be copied by other people without attribution. It will be manufactured into products, you know, without your permission, without any contract or royalty agreement in place. You know, basically that there's a risk that like, if I put it online, it's out of my control. And so I need to sort of shelter it and hang on to it until I can get a contract somewhere. But that's really a self-defeating uh, path. It can be. I, I mean, I think that's a really tricky line to walk. Um, and you're absolutely right. And those fears, I think, are valid. But I think there are things that you can do to mitigate that risk. Um, you can get design patents where if you design a whole portfolio, you apply, or not a design patent, you can get design patents as well, but design copyrights. So you can copyright a whole portfolio of designs as one copyright. And so there are ways that you can exert ownership so that if somebody does steal your work, you can pursue that and get it taken down. Um, and actually copyrights, that's just if you want to register the copyright. But the minute you publish something online, it is technically copyrighted. So um, ha just having that publication out there protects you a little bit, even though it also exposes you to people stealing it. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that you can do is look into how to keep some of your work private. So when I was still shopping my work around to fabric companies, and even now, while I um, am open to getting licensing agreements with non-fabric companies, I have a portfolio online that's private, and they have to ask me for a password in order to get to it. So I can have it out there to a certain extent, but it's not completely public. And mm. so there are different ways of getting around that too. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing is that why it doesn't necessarily have to be your fabric designs that you're putting out there, right? You could be putting other types of content out there that have your name on them that gain you that following as well. Because again, this is an industry where you really do kind of have to have a lot of irons in the fire. And why not use some of those iron to help build your reputation. Yeah, right. Exactly. So in other words, it could be through video content. It could be through Facebook exactly. Live, through um, tutorials, through technique, um, blog posts, mm -hmm. through guest posting. There's lots of, you know, through interviewing, there's lots of different right. ways to build a following that's um, related, directly related to where you want to go, but doesn't involve you um, sort of sharing your entire portfolio with the world. Right. 
Um, right. right. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great point. So um, I want to make sure we talk a little bit about your books, um, because oh. you've written two books with Stash Books, which was um, which is an imprint as sort of the modern imprint of CNT Publishing. And um, I know that during that process, you documented what it took to write a book um, on your blog and the, the publisher, which was really interesting, agreed to write some posts of their own about the making mm-hmm. of a craft book and kind of mm-hmm. together documenting what it really is to write a book, which I thought was such a great um, series. And we'll link to that Thank series. You. Yeah. So people can check it out. But what did you feel like you took away from, from writing a, a craft book? And do you feel like Today, in this publishing environment, um, there really is something worthwhile there still. I do think there is a lot worthwhile there. But again, I think that like anything else in business, it's really important to be realistic about and to do your research and do your due diligence about what what the benefits are going to be. And with writing a craft book, I think that a misconception often is that you write a book and you get it and it's a source of income and it is a source of income, but I think that it has more important benefits than being solely a source of income. And I think that one of the most important benefits is the legitimacy and the increased profile that it gives you. So when I was writing my books, um, first of all, I thought it was a worthwhile process because I had so much fun. It was wonderful to work with C&T. First of all, I was very lucky. I got great editors and I worked with wonderful people who are still my friends today. Um, But uh, I really enjoyed the process of writing a book. And maybe that's the the um, maybe that's my grad student background talking there because I enjoyed all of the aspects of it. And so it was it was fun. But I also kind of looked at it as something that, you know, this is going to give me a legitimate name in the industry. It's going to open up doors for me, like teaching at QuiltCon. It's going to open up doors for teaching in other types of venues. And so essentially, it's kind of like a big advertisement for me that I get paid to do instead of the other way around. Um, And so that was the core benefit that I was looking at rather than just the monetary compensation. And so in that respect, I think that it really, really paid off. But if I had just been going at it from the monetary compensation perspective, I think I would have been disappointed. And I think that that's just standard. I'm not saying that in a way that is meant to be disparaging to the publishing industry or to my particular publisher or any of the other um, aspiring authors out there. I think that it's just realistic that writing a book especially a crafting book in a crowded market is something that um, it's it, the margins again are slim enough where you really have to be planning on something else supplementing that income. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's a piece of the puzzle as is fabric design. It's a piece yeah. of the puzzle. So, um, <laughs> and I wanted to um, talk a little bit um, before we get to your recommendations about what you're making right now, which um, looks like some really beautiful quilts, which you're calling color wash quilts. And these are uh, also not piece there and they're not applique. They are painted. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yes. Yes. Um, so the color wash quilt came about as um, through a long process of research and development. Actually, it took 
several years for me to come up with the process that I use for these and even to just come up with the idea. But what kind of spurred that on was that I wanted to expand my business beyond just catering to the crafting industry. And it had always been kind of a dream of mine to enter into the home decor industry as well. And as many of your listeners probably know, and certainly anybody who has ever made a quilt knows, um, the process of making a quilt is so labor intensive and getting high quality materials can be so pricey that it is nearly impossible to make a quilt at a price point that most people are expecting. And there's lots of fantastic resources out there about what actually, if you add up the cost of the time and the materials, most quilts are going to come out at least $1,000, right? And that's kind of a hard sell for the majority of consumers out there. And so I knew that that wasn't going to be the best way of that just targeting that market that can pay $1,000 for a quilt wasn't necessarily going to get me as far as I wanted to go. So I had to come up with a process where I could make a quilt that was just as high quality and just as original and just as unique, but that I could offer at a lower price point because not as many hours went into making it. And that's where the idea of painting them came in because now I'm working with a whole cloth quilt. So there's no construction of the quilt top that requires sewing and the painting process is a lot quicker to, um, to complete. But you still come away with a completely one of a kind product that's completely unique and original the same way that uh, an original painting is a complete unique original piece Mm -hmm. so it still carries that um that cachet with the end use consumers but i can offer it at a lower price point and one day if i am ever successful enough to hire people to help me make these i'll be able to pay them fairly for the hours that actually do go into making one of those because the total number of hours will be lower than if it were a piece quilt or an applique quilt Yes. And if you want to um, be able to sell handmade goods, being able to find a product, uh, develop a product, as you said, it's like research and development um, that is uh, sustainable to and profitable in the marketplace. In other words, there's a market for it at the price (laughs) that it's, you know, at the price that you need to get paid for it. Um, is really worth doing because just because you love, you know, to make an applique quilt doesn't necessarily mean that that should be the product that is your handmade business um, because it may not make sense uh, Uh financially for that to to work. Um, So you can still make them, but you would need to make them into patterns or need to make them into books or into a workshop. And when you're going to sell the handmade item itself, you're going to need to develop something different. Yeah. And it was also really important to me to develop because when I started out, I thought I would never be sewing something that I was going to plan to sell the actual product to somebody because um, I love making things, but it's very different to make things as a leisure, pleasurable activity than it is to make something production line style on a deadline. So, and even though I love making applique quilts and I loved making all of the quilts for all of my patterns and all of my books, I knew that each of those was going to be a unique piece and that once I was done with it, I never had to make that quilt again. And I think it gave me more patience and more tolerance for the process. But if I had made one of those quilts knowing, okay, and after this, if I am successful enough to get an order, I'm going to have to make this over again 200 times. I don't think I would have ever conceived of enjoying that process nearly as much as I enjoy making the first one. But with painting, it's um, the process is just different enough that I can, it's sustainable for me to actually engage in, in a repeated kind of way. Mm-hmm. Right. Another great point. Okay, cool. Let's, um, let's hop to your recommendations. So uh-huh. you had three 
Um, really good ones. And I want to start with your local library, which I love my library. And every time I go there and we bring home so many books every week and I'm always like, it's amazing. They let us walk out with all these books for free. So, um, so say a few words about your St. Louis County (laughs) library. So my local library is St. Louis County, but I actually made this recommendation in the interest of having listeners check out their local and regional libraries. And the reason I'm specifically um, really enthusiastic about my library right now, in addition to the fact that they have tons of books that they will let me borrow for free and other types of resources and media that they'll let me borrow, is that they have subscriptions to an amazing selection of business resources. Um, They have subscriptions to marketing and demographic databases that cost thousands of dollars. And these are the same databases that major businesses, like huge companies like Apple, Apple and other types of corporations like that are using to do their market research to position their products and to uh, to develop new products. And this is the kind of thing that would normally be completely out of reach for a small business. But with a library card to our local library, which is free because it's paid for by our property taxes, I can access those exact same resources and I can even log in from my house and access them from home. So I spent all of last night reading a whole bunch of industry reports and case studies that I got for free from the library that um, that that are probably, you know, I would have had to pay hundreds of dollars to access them in any other way. So it's a really a fantastic resource. Um, I got free training on how to use the databases. And I don't think that I was aware that they were available. They weren't super greatly advertised until I started taking some business courses and interacting with the entrepreneurial community here. So it's definitely something to look for because it might not you know, they might not put it in your face. You might have to go search for it, but you might have some really good resources available to you if you take a look. Yes. And many local libraries have that. We were talking about lynda.com where you took the illustrator mm-hmm. course, have subscriptions yeah. to lynda.com that you can also yeah. access for free. So if you want to learn, and that's how I learned how to edit this podcast, by the way, <laughs> on lynda.com, um, took a class on GarageBand and still use all those skills today. It was so worth it. And so you can get those courses for free, um, often from your library. So check it out. And you also wanted to talk about your own library. So your, <laughs> your personal library. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I, this, I say this in kind of a facetious way. Um, but I am a book collector. Um, I still have most of the art history books that I acquired when I was in graduate school much to my husband's chagrin, but I also find that having physical books is something that really helps my inspiration process because taking through a book kind of lends itself a little bit more to kind of that serendipitous inspiration that you might not get when you're doing a really targeted search online. So I go online all the time to find inspiration if I have a particular keyword that I want to look up. But if I don't exactly know or have a really fully formed idea of what type of thing I'm searching for, or even what kind of keyword I would use to search for it online, I can go to the books in my library and just start paging through them. And usually then I'll find something that I didn't even know existed or I didn't even know I needed. But now that I have this new problem I'm trying to solve, I'm seeing it in a new way. And I think that having a physical book lends itself to that process a lot more than the internet in a way, because again, you don't have to necessarily have a keyword that you're searching with 
when you're looking through a book awesome. or a magazine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yes, that um, discovery is wonderful for sure. And also there's something just dreamy about holding a book in your hands oh, and yeah. um, <laughs> laying in bed and flipping through the pages and just, you know, letting your mind drift, which is what I like to do at the end of the day. And um, yeah. uh, speaking of books, you had a specific book that is sort of business related that you wanted to recommend called the No Pay MBA. Yeah. um, So actually the blog is called the No Pay MBA. Um, It's nopaymba.com. And the book is actually called um, Don't Pay for Your MBA. So, um, and it just recently came out, I think late last year, but it's by Lori Pickard and she wanted to get a business education, but wasn't sure about being able to invest the financial resources in getting an MBA. And so she turned to massive online courses to get the same kinds of information that you would normally get through an MBA course, except she was able to tailor make it to her own particular needs. And she found that a lot of the courses were taught by the same professors that are teaching the pay MBAs at major universities like NYU. So you are really getting the same kind of quality of education. And so she loved this process so much and wanted to make it available to other people. And so she ended up writing a blog and that transformed into a whole book directing people through the process of how to access these free courses on the internet to get this kind of education. And again, I think this is something that, especially for small business owners, you know, for a crafting business, it might not ever work out in the long run that you want to pay for an MBA because the return on investment for the kinds of profits that we make in a small crafting business just they, they might not ever be worth it, but knowing that you can get exactly the same information and develop the same skill set without investing that level of financial resources, I think can be really valuable. So I have to admit that I haven't read the book yet, but based on the blog, the resources are going to be really amazing. And I'm looking forward to following her program. That's super. What a great recommendation. Thank you so much. And Casey, thank you for taking the time to be on the Walshy Naps podcast. This was really wonderful. Oh, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to talk with you. And um, yeah, I, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Abby. And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. And thank you to today's episode sponsor, Spoonflower. If you're a creative person who loves to design, there is nothing quite like the feeling of seeing your art printed onto fabric. Want to cross the globe, purchase it, and make something amazing. Spoonflower is the first company to make it possible to digitally print custom fabric, wallpaper, and gift wrap with no minimums and no limitations of color. Shop from thousands of indie designers or sell your own designs and earn up to 15% commission on every sale. The best part? As an independent designer, you'll always keep the rights to your work. Walshy Naps podcast listeners can get 15% off your next Spoonflower fabric order. So go to try.spoonflower.com slash Abby, and I'll have that in the show notes for you, and enter your email address to receive your coupon code. Thank you so much, Spoonflower. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I will see you next time.